Good morning to you all. It's a joy to see you. It's a joy to be worshiping together with you. And it is a great joy to hear God's Word together. His Word is life. Uh, So let's give our attention now to the reading of His Word. We start with Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 24. Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 24. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold, and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost, and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture, and have drunk of the clear waters, that you must foul the residue with your feet? And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet, and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, And he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And our New Testament reading, our sermon text, is Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes." And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off 
and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray now and seek His blessing on it. Our Lord God, You tell us that the one to whom You look is the one who is humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at Your Word. Lord, let us be those who are the poor in spirit and brokenhearted and hungry for Your Word, responsive to it, ready to tremble at it, ready to take comfort and encouragement from it, ready to heed it. And all that You say, Lord, we cannot do this for ourselves. Only You can open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts and give faith. So, Father, we pray by Your sovereign Spirit, grant us life in Christ through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every now and then as we work through Matthew, I'd like to just take a, take a second as we, as we get into the text, before we get into the text, to, to get the big picture view again in front of us, just get our bearings, recognize where we are in Matthew's gospel. Um, Matthew 18, we're diving into Matthew 18, is a new section in the gospel. It's the fourth major teaching block in Matthew's gospel. Uh, so, so Matthew structures his gospel a bit loosely uh, sometimes, but it's around these five teaching blocks in, in his gospel. The first one's the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, where he says, here's the kingdom. Here's what it is. Here's what it's like. Here's what it means. The end time kingdom of God is coming. And here's what that means for you in, in chapters 5 through 7. And then the next teaching block, the second one, is in chapter 10 as he commissions and instructs his disciples to go out and preach this kingdom that he himself has, has preached. Uh, and then in chapter 13, the third of the teaching blocks, Jesus is pressing home the question, you've heard the kingdom? It's been preached to you? You've seen the miracles? What are you going to do? How do you respond? Faith or unbelief? He uses parables especially in chapter 13, to drive that point right right through, that, that wedge going right through the middle of his hearers. Some on one side, some on the other. You can't just be neutral. Are you for Christ or are you against Christ? And then we come to chapter, we come to this fourth main teaching section in his gospel, chapter 18. And now Jesus turns his attention in this one to his disciples, very particularly. And, and to Okay, we're in the kingdom of heaven together. We're, we're expecting the kingdom. Uh, we're living as, as this new congregation, this new church 
founded on Christ? Uh, how do we live in this kingdom together as brothers and sisters? How, what, what rules of life govern the community of, of, of the kingdom of heaven that, that, that's, that's forming around Jesus here? This is what chapter 18 is all about. What should life be like in the church? It's a very practical section of Matthew's gospel. It's intensely, we could say aggressively practical, fiercely practical for us. The things that Jesus speaks to here speak directly to how we are to live with regards to one another under Christ together in his church. And at the heart, what's at the heart of everything Jesus is saying in chapter 18 to us? What's to govern us? What's the basic rule of life in this church of Christ? You sum it up in one word. Humility. Humility. Outside of the kingdom, outside of Christ's kingdom, all of human life is driven by pride. Not not humility, but pride. Sin has written pride into the code of our spiritual DNA. Right? It's right. We're not right, human beings made in God's image. Are not right. We're not meant to be proud. But sin has gotten into us at the deepest spiritual level. Because of Adam's sin, because of our fall into sin, and it's, and it's rewritten it, rewritten our spiritual DNA so that we are fundamentally selfish, proud, self-obsessed sinners who count ourselves more significant than everyone else. Uh, what does this look like? Uh, let me illustrate this. I apologize if I've used this story before, uh, but when I was in second grade, I thought I was, I thought I was a pretty special basketball player. I thought I, I thought I was uh, better than everyone in my class, and I distinctly remember a recess in second grade. We're playing basketball, and, and I and I turned to my my friends, whom I thought much inferior to me in basketball, and I said, "Do you want to know why I'm so good at basketball?" As though that's the burning question in their minds: Why is Seth so good at basketball? Right? That, that's what pride does. That's what, that's what the self-obsession does. That question, I'm sure, had never crossed their minds. But in my little two, uh, second grade head, right, that must have been the question on their minds. That just, loved ones, we, we, we can see pride in the gym at recess and in second graders. We can see it in the marriage conflicts where no one wants to admit they're wrong. Uh, we can see it in the workplace as people vie for the front, right? Vie for the, the getting noticed, compete for the, for the, for the promotion, uh, uh, put each other down in order to put themselves ahead. And, and unfortunately, we also see it in the church as well. Um, we see it right there in Matthew chapter 18 in the church. Here's this new community. The church of Jesus Christ, this outpost of the kingdom of heaven. And here they are, the opening verses of Matthew 18. And the disciples of Christ are arguing again about who's the greatest in this kingdom. Once again, they're vying to be first in the kingdom of heaven and arguing who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They have just heard Jesus once again say, that he's on the Calvary road, that he's going to die for them and be raised for them. Um, 
but 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 they they don't seem to linger on that very long. They're 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 just all all they can think about is well the kingdom's coming. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Uh, to to which one of us is Jesus going to turn and say I couldn't have done it without you? Right, who's going to be who's going to be at his right hand at his, at his left hand? Perhaps there's jealousy. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up up the Mount of Transfiguration. The other disciples aren't allowed to know what happened there yet until Jesus rises again. Uh, Jesus told them not to share it. Maybe, maybe there's jealousy as they're arguing about these things. You read in in Mark's gospel that that they're arguing about this, and Jesus confronts them about it. And now uh, there's this embarrassed silence. And after a little while, uh, it seems like one or more of them come out with what they've been arguing about. As Matthew records for us here, which of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that's the context then into which Jesus begins this next teaching block of chapter 18. How... How are these relationships in the church to be governed? What's supposed to be the operating principle in the church? And the sum and core of his teaching is that pride has no place. Pride is how the world operates. But this kingdom of Christ flips everything over, turns our relationships from being upside down to being right side up again, calling us to a a radical humility. Loved ones, Nothing is more essential to our well-being in our relationships in the church of Christ than what Jesus is telling us here about humility. A pride will poison us. It will poison our relationships. But humility together under the gospel of Christ will be like a rich and fertile soil in which our relationships together in Christ grow. Three points as we look through Christ's teaching here in these verses. Number one, verses one through four, become like the little ones. Become like the little ones. So verse one, the disciples ask Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus responds by taking a young child and setting him in the midst of the disciples. Picture the scene, 12 at least, the disciples here, 12 grown men, and in the middle of them, Jesus places this, this little boy, maybe, maybe three years old, four or five, uh, not, not much older than that. Mark's Gospel tells us he was small enough, Jesus held him in his arms. Little, little boy here among these 12 grown men. And as you look at the picture, we see a contrast. We see fully grown, mature, responsible, smart, capable adults and this needy child, unimportant and little and low. Now, the world looks at that and says, well, well, the boy is the least significant person there. He's the, he's the least important person there. He's the lowest position there. Greatness in the world's eyes is measured by capability and resources and influence and, and, and power and wisdom and, and strength. And, 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 and this boy doesn't have any of those things. Um, but Jesus says, in my kingdom, in my Father's kingdom, Greatness. Greatness is measured by lowliness. Greatness, in God's eyes, looks like the little boy that Jesus sets in their midst. What is it about children here that Jesus holds them up as the ideal of greatness in his kingdom? 
is it that children are just naturally innocent, naturally good? Oh, no. Um, actually, they're, they're very proud, uh, as my illustration earlier showed. Right? Children are very selfish, uh, just as selfish as the rest of us. But what about them makes them then um, to be this good example of humility? Well, it's, especially in the culture of Jesus' day, children were seen as, as unimportant as lowly, as, as the bottom of the rung, right? No social standing. Um, children were, 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 were in the lowest position in the social hierarchy. So Jesus is calling us to see ourselves in the lowest position. Don't treat others, he's saying. Be, be like a child. Don't, don't treat others like you're more important than they are. Treat others as more significant than yourself. We should have this mentality. I'm the least significant person here, wherever I am. We see this, this beautiful humility in, um, in the Apostle Paul in some of his writings in the New Testament. Right. Think, think of Paul. He, he's planting churches. He's writing scripture. He's, he's evangelizing. He's, this, he's, this, uh, he's doing so much to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. But over and over in his writings, he talks about himself as the lowest and the least in Christ's kingdom. First Corinthians 15, 8 through 9, Paul writes, last of all, as to one untimely born, Christ appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Ephesians 3.8, he writes this, I am the very least of all the saints. Paul? 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Dear brothers and sisters, that's the humility that Christ calls every single one of us to have. I am the least of all the saints. How important is this? Jesus tells us in verse 3, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. He assumes a change is necessary. He can see it's necessary. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Unless you change, repent, unless you're converted by the all-powerful work of God, you will remain radically proud. Radical means down to your roots. Right? You'll, you'll be proud down to your roots unless you are changed. Unless your heart has changed from fundamentally self-serving to fundamentally God-serving and others-serving, Jesus says, you should not expect to find his kingdom open to you. Um, he's, not, he's not saying that uh, you, you earn your way into his kingdom by being humble. But he's saying humility like this is the mark of being already brought into the kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do, how, do, how do we change? We're proud. Proud-hearted. How do we change? How do we get a childlike heart? We, we use the example of Paul and his humility. How, how did he change? He, 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 wasn't, he wasn't humble by nature, was he? He was self-righteous. He, 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 he knew he was the best in his class in the Pharisees' school. 
right? He, he knew, he says, I was advancing beyond many of my own age. Um, he says, with regards to the law, I thought I was blameless. But then what happened to him? But Christ came to him. And he saw the gospel by the power of God. He saw the humility of Christ and the love of Christ for him. And he came to see his own sin. He came to see that all his righteousness was filthy rags. Loved ones, if you want to grow in humility, it will happen by no other way than by the grace of God, seeing your sin in in its ugliness, in its filthiness, in its odiousness, and seeing the grace of God for you in Jesus Christ. Knowing it in your bones, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. That's where humility, that's where humility comes from. So pray for it. Pray that God would show you these things. So become like the little ones, Jesus tells us. The second, the second thing, love the little ones. Verses 5 through 9. Love the little ones. Um, Jesus here is teaching us that in the church, it's not enough simply to become sensible of your own littleness before God and others, but you must also look out for the least and littlest around you. So what he, this humility that Jesus is teaching us and describing for us here is not just a sense of my own lowliness before God and my undeserving before Him. It's not a private virtue. Uh, it, it's also a way of life. And it's, and it's a way of not just, not just thinking of, uh, not, not, not just humble before the Lord, but, but looking out and loving for all the other lowly people around us as well. Looking out for the lowest and the least in God's kingdom and loving them. Um, Christ's words in verse 5 are, are, are remarkable here. Uh, he says, um, we need to welcome the little ones. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So Jesus, right? Twelve disciples, this little boy. Jesus is, is, is continuing to, to use this, uh, the, this child as his example of lowliness and insignificance and unimportance. And he says that when you welcome a love and love a child in Christ's church for Christ's sake and Christ's name, Christ looks at that as though you are welcoming him. And he doesn't just mean uh, the children of the church. He means all those who are the least and the lowest in Christ's church, which is really all of us, isn't it? Um, he's calling us here to treat the lowest in his kingdom and the least in his kingdom as we would treat him. He is telling us, right? This is just glorious. He's the king of kings. Eternal God, the great redeemer and Messiah. And he says, I'm watching how you treat the lowest servant in my kingdom and how you treat them. I experience it as that's how you treat me. Is it worth your time, loved ones, to serve the least and the lowest in our church? To serve the children, Serve in the nursery. Teach the three and four and five-year-olds. Is it worth it to be a young mom caring for, for little kids and caring for them and, and teaching them? When you do it, you're serving Christ. When you serve the least and lowest in His church, you're serving Christ. He counts it as service done to Him, Himself, personally. So you do this. So, 
these things that, 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 that we don't often think of as, as, as great, important, honorable tasks are hugely important in Christ's eyes. And this doesn't just apply to the children of the church. This applies to everyone in the church going to the nursing home, ministering to the shut-ins, ministering to the elderly. When you serve as a greeter at the door and you welcome your brothers and sisters to the church, Christ counts it as you welcoming him. When you say, how are you to each other? When you, when you ask, when you really want to know, how are you doing? Christ counts it as you treating him with that same love. As you welcome and receive each other, you invite someone over for a meal. Christ counts it as you inviting him over for a meal. Whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. When you make a meal for someone who's sick or busy, or you reach out to someone who's discouraged, Christ sees it as done to him. What a privilege it is. It is better to serve than to be served. We're serving the Lord Christ in these ways, brothers and sisters. This is, this is how humility works and acts. Pride, pride paralyzes service to others because it makes it all about yourself. It makes your interactions about you instead of about the other person. Um, pride makes interactions competitions. Or, or a chance for me to, to get something from you or, or gain something over you or, or, or to gain something by you instead of loving you for, for Christ's sake. Humility frees you to forget yourself and love those around you. And this is what Christ is calling us to, loved ones. But there's another aspect to this that, that he brings to our attention, um, that Christ brings to our attention here. Loving the little ones in the church means these things, welcoming, loving, serving them, but also protecting them. And Jesus makes much of this here. He, he draws our attention to this very, very particularly. Protecting the least and the lowest in the church, especially from your own sin. Look at verse 6, Christ's warning in verse 6. He says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Our Lord Jesus loves his people. And so even as much as he says, what, how you serve them, you serve me. Also, how you sin against them and how you hurt them, and how you, how you cause them to stumble. Right? He takes that very personally as well. Right? He's very protective. Christ is fiercely protective of His people. Um, he loves His children with a fierce and protective love. He, he loved us so much, He gave His life for us. For the least and the lowest, He died. So be careful. This is what he's calling it. Be, be careful that, that you don't bring any spiritual harm to those who belong to Jesus. Watch your words that, that you don't cause them to stumble. Watch that you don't uh, do actions that would cause those around you in Christ to stumble. Make sure you don't set before Christ's people any other example of life than that which would draw them closer to Christ. Don't do anything to ever Put an obstacle in the way of the little ones and Christ. Let, let everything you do draw, those, draw, draw them closer to Him 
Uh, J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, we, might, well, we, we put offenses or stumbling blocks in the way of men's souls whenever we do anything to keep them back from Christ. Jesus says, we better for a millstone to be hung around your neck, thrown into the sea, than to put an obstacle between one of his children and him. And at the heart of this, what Jesus is describing here, what this means then for us, is as he goes on to describe in verses 8 through 9, is the need for us to be dealing with sin in our own lives, dealing with sin in our own hearts, realizing that it's not only a matter of a life and death struggle for me, but my sin actually is the greatest threat to those around me as well. Um, Jesus tells us in, in verses 8 through 9, we cannot be too severe with sin, cannot be too hard on yourself uh, in your sin. You cannot be too relentless in, in, in putting sin to death and saying no to temptation. Don't, don't use half-hearted measures. Gouge it out and cut it off and make sacrifices. Um, we like to give a free pass to this sin or that sin or a small amount here, or a small amount there, or to make excuses for ourselves and our sins. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says, cut it off. Get rid of it. Don't say, well, I'll start getting rid of it. Get rid of it. What's the sin that you need to cut off and stop? Seek His grace. He'll give you grace. He's promised grace. Put it off. Put, put, put the sin off. And most of all, um, what Christ is describing here in the context, yes, every, every, every sin, we could list out sin after sin that we should be fighting and putting off, but especially He's calling us to put off the sin of pride. All right, this, is, this is the context. Um, stop living proudly. Stop seeking your own ambition. Humble yourself before God. If you do not fight your sin, then you face Christ's own judgment. Be killing sin or be killing you is the great line, isn't it? But we also need to say, given the context, that he's not only saying, Christ is not only saying, be killing sin or sin will be killing you, but he's also saying, be killing sin or sin will be killing those around you. Your sin is not a private thing. It's not ever a private thing. It impacts those around you. So, brothers and sisters, ask yourselves, is my life drawing those around me closer to Christ or driving them farther from Christ? It's the way you are training your children and teaching your children and living before your children, putting an obstacle between them and Christ or removing all obstacles to Christ. The same with, with those around you. Are you helping one another in this church, your brothers and sisters, draw closer to Him? Or are you getting in the way of their walk with Him? And then the third thing our Lord says, verses 10 through 14, He calls us to look for the little ones. Look for the little ones. The third way here in which humility should control our relationships in the church is that it should cause us to look for the little ones. We should love them and we should go after them when we see them losing their way. Jesus draws our attention here back to loving the littlest and the least. 
in his church. Verse 10, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Don't look down on anyone in Christ's church. Do not look down on anyone whom Christ died for. Uh, Do not despise the least person in this church. Don't look at your brothers and sisters and ever think that they are less important or less significant than you or they're not worth your time, your love, or your effort. Um, Christ tells us here, the least in the kingdom of heaven has an army of angels. They have angels in heaven before God. God values them that much and loves them that much. They're treasured by God. They're they're so dearly treasured by God that Jesus tells us here, God does not think it too small a thing to go after the least and littlest lost child that belongs to him. Jesus gives us this parable here. Um, There's a shepherd. He has a hundred sheep. One wanders away. And what does the good shepherd do? He leaves the 99 and he goes after the, the one lost Sheep. This is the this is the mark of a, of a good shepherd. He, he cares for for all of his sheep individually and personally. He knows them. He's invested in them, and he loves them. And and Jesus is pointing to to this, and he's saying this is a picture of how God is. God loves and goes after his lost little ones. Our Father in heaven is not willing that one of his sheep should perish. It's a glorious picture, brothers and sisters, that God loves the least and lowest of all his people so much that he'll go after them by his grace and bring them home to himself. But what what value is is one little sheep to God himself? What what can what can one lost sinner add to God or give to God? Why Why does God do this? Because he loves all his own. So he goes after them. He sees us lost in our sin. He sees us lost in, in our own foolish rebellion and pride. And He comes after us. He stopped at nothing. It was, it was hard work to come and find them. It cost Him Christ Himself laying down His life for us. He did not despise us. But He came and sought us out. This is true of every single Christian. It's true of every one of us in this church who is Christ. Every, every, everyone, every member here, every person here who loves the Lord Jesus and trusts Him. This is true of you. God loved you and looked for you and found you and saved you. The person that you're tempted to ignore or look past or slight or the person you don't want to deal with or engage with, yes, that person too. Christ died for them. And God looked for them and found them from all eternity loved them as his own. So if that's true of every member here, how should we treat each other? Especially when you see that person who's starting to to wander, that person on the edge, the person starting to drift from Christ. Go after them, looking for them in love. It's, It's hard, it's painful, and it's messy to go after those who are drifting. It's easier, it's much more comfortable just to let them make their mistakes and not go after them. But brothers and sisters, um, we are our brother's keeper. Let us look for the lost. That is what God did with you. You did not find Christ. 
You were lost. You were scared. You were hopeless. You were a slave to your sin. But then Christ came. It's a hymn that puts this well. It goes like this. I was a wandering sheep. I did not love the fold. I did not love my shepherd's voice. I would not be controlled. I was a wayward child. I did not love my home. I did not love my father's voice. I loved afar to roam. The shepherd sought his sheep. The father sought his child. They followed me o'er every hill, over desert waste and wild. They found me nigh to death, famished and faint and lone. They bound me with the bands of love. They saved the wandering one. Jesus, my shepherd, is. Twas he that loved my soul. Twas he that washed me in his blood. Twas he that made me whole. Twas he that sought the lost, that found the wandering sheep. Twas he that brought me to the fold. Tis he that still doth keep. That is all of us. Saved because of the seeking grace of God that found us and brought us to Himself. Um, Lovers, notice how personal this is, right? He came out seeking each one individually, right? It's not just this general category. God likes to look for lost sinners. No, He seeks His lost sheep by name. And no obstacle was too much. And his son, his son became like a little child, didn't he? He became a baby, born in a manger, poor and lowly. Right? His son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, did not think, it equality, uh, did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and made himself nothing. And became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what he did to seek every one of you out. It's glorious. He came to seek and to save us. Save us from our pride. Save us from our, our lack of love for each other. And also to transform us, loved ones. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is a church. This is, this is the church of Christ under this glorious gospel of Christ. So let us repent of our pride. By God's grace, let humility be the rule of life here in our church, in our homes, in our lives, because Christ became like a little one for us. Let us become like little ones with each other. And, and because Christ loved little ones like us, let us love the little ones around us. And because Christ came looking for little ones like us, let us also go looking for the little ones around us. Let's pray. We give thanks to you, our God, for the grace that you've shown us in Christ. And we pray that you would transform us by that grace, refresh us in that grace. Show us the glory of Christ and the humility of Christ. And Lord, grow us in these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.